Welcome to the April 2020 episode of RCV Clips. I'm Chris, a member of the Ranked Choice Voting Resource Center team. We're taking the focus a bit off of RCV itself today to talk about another election reform that's been gaining steam, vote at home elections. Vote at home or vote by mail has been a major topic of conversation, especially in the last few weeks as the impact of coronavirus on our elections becomes more and more clear. So today I'm speaking with Amber McReynolds, CEO of National Vote at Home and former director of elections for the city of Denver, where all elections are conducted by mail. She's going to walk us through the work she did in Denver to get vote by mail set up, her work with National Vote at Home and the overlap of Vote at Home and RCV. Thanks so much for joining me today, Amber. Thanks for having me. Of course. So like I said in my intro, vote at home, vote by mail has been mentioned a lot recently as a potential remedy to concerns people have about how to safely hold an election in the midst of of a public health crisis like the COVID-19 outbreak. So can you take a second just to walk us through what makes vote at home such a, a compelling solution for people? Yeah. Uh, well, when I was director of elections in Denver, I was one of the um, one of the folks that helped to write the legislation that sort of has become known as the Colorado voting model. And that includes a provision to mail ballots to every voter before every election. Uh, and really, the, the goal there is to demystify the process, make it predictable for voters and then allow election officials to plan more effectively for for what they should expect to see in an election. Um, and, and then couple that, you know, the mailing out of ballots was sort of the first step. The other additional reforms that we did was uh, put in place vote centers, which voters can go to any of those locations to vote in person during early voting or on election day. And we also passed automatic registration and same day registration so and that's part of the reason why we have to have vote centers in, in that type of model, because you can register and vote up to and on Election Day. Uh, so that's sort of that that model in and of itself. And what was you know, when we when we were building that model and it had never been done before that way in the country, Colorado also was the creator of the concept of vote centers. And what our entire goal was, was to ensure that we could mitigate risks in the election process create a safe, a secure, an accessible, and an equitable voting process for every single elector, regardless of their circumstances, where they are, whether or not they had multiple jobs at night and during the day, if they have kids at home, whatever their circumstances are, we wanted to be sure we had a solution for them. And that's why that model was structured in the way that it was, because not only did we mail a ballot, but we also preserved the in-person voting options that are also so important um, in terms of access and in terms of in- ensuring that every voter has um, uh, the services that they need, should they need to go in person or should they need a replacement ballot or, or what have you. So that's how that came about. And I think what is interesting in terms of the pandemic is that not only did that model improve the voting experience for all voters, but it also has now been proven to be resilient to situations like a public health crisis like uh, other natural disaster type situations that might occur, whether it's the, one of the polling, something happening to a polling place or even tornadoes like what we just saw in Nashville during an election. That model is, is there's resiliency sort of built in. Is it perfect? No. However, it does mitigate a significant number of risks uh, within the voting process that we're now seeing play out across the country. One, one thing I'm sort of curious about is how 
with that resiliency, you still, there are still probably new steps you have to take in order to keep your polling centers safe, to keep your counting centers where you're getting all your ballots safe. What sort of processes are you seeing to adapt to, you know, the new standards of, of cleanliness of public health we need to ad- apply? There's still key steps that have to be taken by election officials to make sure the in-person sites are, are safe for, for their poll workers, but also for voters. Um, and the Department of Homeland Security, along with CISA and a couple working groups, have put out you know, recommendations for how to how to make that uh, happen and what those what those steps are. Um, but also it's important to make sure that the locations where ballots are processed, so mail ballots going out, they still have to come back in and they still have to be processed by a group of individuals, uh, a lot of times using equipment, but a lot of times in a very manual way. Um, so we have to also make sure those, sites and locations are secure and they have the added um, features that we need when we are dealing with a public health crisis like this, including rubber gloves, for instance, like that tends to be a a staple that's used in processing mail ballots even before the pandemic. But those things are even more important now and hand sanitizer and making sure that there's social distancing and there's, you know, enough space for all of that activity to happen. Those things are all really important in terms of planning for the upcoming elections whether they be the primary or the general election, which is now only 200, slightly over 200 days away. And actually ballots go out in about 150 days. Right. Of course, because of the. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 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 Wow. Um, So I guess with that, I wanted to sort of go back to the beginning. You, You already covered what drove Denver, what drove Colorado to move to this vote at home model to, to the vote by mail model. But what's the timeline look like for ramping up to a, a full Colorado model? Well, so our le- we, we passed our legislation in May of 2013, and the governor signed it in May. And then we had our first statewide election in November. So ballots actually were out in you know the beginning of October. Um, so very short time frame, actually very similar to the time frame that we're talking about now. Um, we, over you know, time before that legislation passed, voters were asking and signing up to vote by mail more frequently than maybe what we see in other states. Um, but there is there is time if states act now to prepare and to add equipment and to adjust their processes and adjust their procedures for them to scale up. And, and what I would say is it's not really even it's not necessarily up to election officials. Voters are opting in to vote by mail now. We just saw that in Wisconsin where, you know, I think 40% of the electorate ended up signing up to get a vote by mail ballot for their primary. They've never seen numbers like that. So, so it's almost, it's not even really whether or not a governor or a state legislative body decides to mail a ballot to every, every voter, the voters are opting for it anyway. So it's really inevitable that there's a going to be a scale up. Um, And we're already starting to see that in trends across the country. Well, and the the other stat I saw about Wisconsin was in addition to the huge number of ballots request, there was an 80% return rate, which is four times better than any previous Wisconsin election um, in terms of return of absentee ballots. That's right. And, you know, um, I think also when you even when you compare voters that that request an absentee ballot or vote by mail, their turnout is is higher exponentially than voters that don't request that ballot up front. Um, and the states that do mail a ballot to every elector are always in the top states for turnout. And so there's a 
there's definitely a correlation between um, engagement and, and turnout and, you know, sending out a ballot automatically or even just the act of vote by mail. Right. It sort of, it lowers one of those barriers people face in getting out to vote. That's right. And it gives voters more time at home. Uh, so one of the other, we've got a few research studies on our website that, um, demonstrate the correlation between being more informed as a voter and being able to research issues at your home or research candidates more effectively when you have more time, all of those benefits that you get by voting at home um, uh, lead to a more informed, you know, uh, voting population or electorate, if you will. And we're even seeing uh, voters that vote at home will go farther down the ballot. So we see an uptick in turnout for like state legislative races or local races because voters have more time and they don't feel that rush and that anxiety of standing in line or standing in person and trying to rush through their ballot. And so you mentioned, you know, there's sort of this inevitable scaling up that we're probably going to see across the country of vote at home, of of using absentee ballots. What are the things that you're seeing election administrators do now or uh, you think they might need to do to be ready for this probable tidal wave of, of absentee ballot applications? First and foremost, you know, in the states like similar to Wisconsin, where you have to request an absentee ballot, that process varies by state. And, you know, some states like Florida will allow you to send an email to your registrar or your county clerk, or you can sign up online, or you can even call in and, and request an absentee ballot. Um, and then there's some states that are extremely restrictive and still require a paper application, sometimes with a notary. Uh, they don't have an online request form. You can't request it via email. So there's this huge variance with how this works across multiple states. And um, what's unfortunate for voters is that navigating those steps and that process in states can be really difficult. I mean, sometimes it's not even clear on the you know, whether it's the county or the state officials' websites as to what that process is. So we, we also are, are encouraging, you know, secretaries of state, but also local election officials to make sure they, you know, make the make sure that process is clear and there's an easy way for voters to sign up. Um, and then, of course, the influx of applications, you know, 40 percent of Wisconsin voters just filled out a piece of paper to request an absentee ballot. And what that means, just from a volume perspective, is that, that Wisconsin election officials essentially just process the same volume that they would for voter registration. So they essentially just reprocessed 40, you know, 40 percent of their population in terms of registering a vote. because It's the same process. It takes the same amount of time to register a voter that it does to, you know, request a ballot. Um, so there's the huge data entry influx and. We've been, you know, encouraging election officials uh, at the local level to um, adjust and kind of evaluate their processes for receiving that kind of volume because it's hard to keep up with. And we just saw that in Wisconsin. They, they literally it was hard for them to keep up with that volume on a daily basis in terms of getting ballots out. Um, so earlier is better. And, you know, I think I think it, it's incumbent upon all election officials to communicate to voters and, and encourage them to sign up for vote by mail early and now and not wait until the last minute, because that's where the problems can arise when there's you know huge volumes at the last minute. There's just not enough time to process all of those applications. 
Yeah. And sometimes they, you know, and there were some cases I saw where they didn't have enough envelopes left. So oh they, my ran God. Out, they ran out of supplies. And again, that kind of speaks to why it's important, you know, encouraging voters to sign up now and over the next few months so that if you're already on the absentee list, election officials know that, and then they can prepare to have enough envelopes or they can, you know, get a contract in place with a printing and mailing vendor that can do it for them. So they don't worry about running out of envelopes. Is it possible that these printing and mailing vendors though are going to similarly run out of capacity. If everybody's going to them, what's, will they be able to serve everybody? That industry is quite large and they are doing some things as an industry. Like I've talked to a couple of the associations within the industry um, to prepare. And they, I think they all recognize they're all watching uh, that there's this big increase and, you know, it's really all about timing. So, you know, with a vendor, if they get, if they have a lot of interest and they have more uh, counties coming online and they see that they can order more equipment and they can scale up their operations, but they have to do it now. And that's, that's really the important thing is that everything the vendors do are essentially, it's all driven by decisions that County and local election officials are making. And if that process is slow because of politics and because of the political uh, sort of discussions that are happening in various States or even at the federal level, that, you know, the minute that that slows down, that has a domino effect from, you know, going to the local election officials and then and then certainly to the vendors because the vendors are ready to help, but they need orders. They need to be told what, you know, mm-hmm. they, they need. They need contracts in place. Um, they can scale up, but they need the time to do it. And time is of the essence here. That makes a lot of sense. Getting back to, you know, the actual ballot casting process. How do you serve voters who need accommodation to vote on paper when you're moving to a vote by mail system? Sure. Well, there's some there's some great examples actually of how states have created accessible vote at home solutions. So California is a good example. Utah also has some language in their law. Um, and many states already offer an accessible electronic option for mailing the ballot out. Uh, or delivering the ballot, I should say, uh, for military voters. So there are many solutions in place. Uh, I, I, I think California's language is, um, is is really good, and they and they've they've essentially adopted what they do for military voters for a broader population um, to use in the event that they need that accessible option. So that's an important part of a good vote at home solution is having the accessible voting at home option as well. One other thing that I've been hearing recently, and I just wanted to hear what you have to say, is people are some people are worried that voting by mail is less secure than voting in a polling place, whether because you know you may face pressures at home or from your employer if you have your ballot with you that you wouldn't necessarily face in a polling place. Um, how do you manage those potential pressures in in a vote by mail system? First off, I think the the model that we uh, passed in Colorado again accommodated all voters, and and there's a, an important a few important elements around that. First, in the 14 years I ran elections, I never had a voter, you know, in the previous model or in the um, current way of doing it, I never had a voter uh, reach out to say that they felt that they'd been intimidated by using their mail ballot at home. I did, however, have a lot of people that would complain or file, file, um, problems with polling places where they were intimidated outside of the voting locations by, 
you know, different groups that would, you know, stand in the parking lots or try to influence what they were doing in those, in those locations. Because when you assign people to a location, everyone knows who goes to those particular polling places because their neighborhood and you know what neighborhoods are going to be there. Right. So we actually experienced a lot more intimidation type tactics for in-person voting. And, and I always point out to people too, that, you know, a long line is one of the most intimidating things that you can do to a voter. If a voter pulls up and there's a four hour line, the likelihood that they're going to stay and vote in that line, if they've either got to get back to work or they have kids to pick up from school or any of that is, is pretty, is pretty slim. And so a, a, a four or five hour voting line at an in-person voting location is, is much more intimidating than anything else that a voter could experience. On the um, specific issue of, say, a, an abusive spouse or a, an intimidating um, employer, any of those things, you know, you, you, first off, you can choose where you want your ballot to be mailed. So you might want to have it mailed to a post office box. And when we were implementing this in Colorado, I actually convened providers um, and social service providers for domestic violence victims. And we talked about this. Um, and I, so I have personal experience kind of dealing with this in, in uh, previous jobs, but also in this particular instance, we convened them to talk specifically about this issue. And what they ended up telling me is that one of the first things they suggest to, to um, you know, victims that are trying to leave that type of situation is change your mailing address, get a post office box or have your mail delivered to a friend or what have you. And so a lot of that, they ended up telling me actually a vote by mail process works better. And it's something they suggest to their victims so that they don't have to worry about trying to get out of the house on the day of the election or any of that kind of thing that could be intimidating to them. So I sort of found that interesting because when people yeah. ask that question, you know, I'm like, well, actually, the providers say a different, you know, have a different story about that. Also, I think it's important that if you get your ballot at home and you do have that happen to you. So if we just play that out for a second, if that happens to somebody, you can go show up in person to your county clerk's office or to a vote center and say, and turn in that ballot or say, Hey, I was intimidated. Uh, my ballot's already in the mail, but I want to vote in person and they will cancel that. And you can vote in person and you can either do that with a normal ballot or a provisional. And when you tell them you want that canceled, and as long as it's not counted yet, the county officials can make that happen. So there's a safeguard built in naturally uh, mm -hmm. to the system as well, which a lot of people don't realize. I mean, it, I find it like reassuring to hear those sorts of things because it is something I'd heard and had crossed my mind, but I, I wasn't sure how to even start thinking about a solution. So it's Definitely for me, interesting to hear that, uh, you know, domestic violence advocates and, and supporters are saying this may help. Yeah. And I think it's important, you know, we do, while we deliver the ballots to all voters, you still have all these methods of returning it. And that's why it's so important to offer those uh, different solutions. Mm -hmm. um, but also, I think that, you know, even on the um, employer side of things or any of those sorts of intimidation type tactics, the other important thing that we always recommend in, in state laws is to ensure that the penalties are strong for anyone who uh, does try to do that. Because, it, you know, it, right. in, in many states, it's actually a felony to try to intimidate a voter, try to um, interfere with the voting process, either via an election official or a voter directly. And so making sure those penalties are strong 
is really important as well to protect voters. Cause my, and my thing, I, I talk about this all the time in a lot of speeches is we want to make sure that voters are protected with the penalties and the felonies and all those sorts of things that are outlined in the law and, and make sure we have a way to catch bad actors or hold people accountable that do try to intimidate, um, whether that's at in-person voting locations where we often see it or in, in individual homes. Right. Changing, um, topics a bit, cause we're, we're about out of time. Um, this isn't typically a ranked choice voting focused podcast. So I wanted to, um, hear from you how you think vote at home and ranked choice voting uh, work together? Are they a natural pair? Are there any sort of like tensions if you're trying to implement them at the same time? What? How do you think they, they work as reforms? I actually helped with the elections in Alaska, Wyoming, and Kansas. And uh, when those, um, and they were all recent Democratic presidential primary uh, elections that were run by the state parties. But, you know, all of those uh, parties, when they uh, they had sort of reached out to a few different folks last last year to say, how should we run this election? Um, that was actually one of one of the suggestions I made was, with, with look, you, the, the best way to do it is to mail everyone a ballot. And given the primary situation, you know, the, the best thing to do, considering that people could drop out or the, the dynamics could change quickly, is to do ranked choice voting. So we actually just have a couple of elections that were run with the combination of those two reforms and those two methods of, of voting. And they worked really well. Uh, all, all three, I think, have record turnout right now compared to what they had last time. Um, and and the elections were resilient in that they didn't have to be uh, changed, canceled, shifted, mm-hmm. and those things because we had proactively planned the elections to be that way. So, yeah, I think they work really nicely together. And I think it's particularly important. Frame choice is particularly important for uh, mail ballot um, voting methods when a primary is involved, because a lot of times the ballots are produced and then, you know, you could have a candidate drop out uh, or that kind of thing. So I'm I, I think it's of particular importance as it relates to primaries. Right. Well, that's um, that's all the time we have. Thank you so much, Amber, for getting on the phone and talking to me today. Oh, sure. You're welcome. I'm, I appreciate being invited. Thanks so much. Of course. And now for this month's final round, where we share an interesting bit of trivia, useful tidbit, or just something we thought was cool for folks to know about ranked choice voting. Here's Melissa Hall with this month's final round. Did you know that Democratic primary voters in four states are using ranked choice voting for the first time this year? The Democratic presidential primaries in Alaska, Hawaii, Kansas, and Wyoming are all using ranked ballots to capture more voter preferences in the formerly crowded Democratic primary. Alaska and Wyoming held their primaries in April, and Hawaii and Kansas will hold theirs in May. If you want to see results from these uses of RCV, state parties are making them available on their websites. Links to those sites are in the show notes. This pioneering RCV implementation makes it this month's final round. Thank you for joining us today for our April RCV clip. This is a monthly segment produced by the Ranked Choice Voting Resource Center. Follow us on Twitter at RCV Resources, on Facebook and LinkedIn at Ranked Choice Voting Resource Center, and check out our website, rankedchoicevoting.org, for more RCV resources. You can find our show anywhere you get podcasts. Please take some time to subscribe to, rate, and review the podcast, too. 
Our theme music is Flutterby by Poddington Bear. We hope you're all staying safe and healthy and protecting yourselves and your loved ones from COVID-19. Thanks to Amber McReynolds for joining us today. Until next time, I'm Chris Hughes on behalf of Melissa Hall and the rest of the Ranked Choice Voting Resource Center.